You know, whenever I study a passage, I, I used to, um, I've listened to a lot of tapes, and, and one of my favorite teachers is John MacArthur, and so I listen to a lot of his tapes. I've never attended that church, but I've listened to his tapes over the years. And, and a lot of times he, he would uh, start off a sermon by saying, you know, this morning we are going to the most significant text in all the Bible. And, uh, and we used to laugh about that because every text was the most significant text. And so when I started preaching and we started um, uh, training uh, young men for the ministry in, in Idaho, um, I didn't even realize it, but every time I got up to preach, it, this is the most significant text in all the Bible. And uh, I began to realize that when you study a passage all week, it is so rich and so good and so loaded with truth. It is the most significant text in all the Bible. So this morning, we're turning to the most significant text in all the Bible on false teachers. And so if you have your Bible, you can look at 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. This last week, I was given the February 2002 issue of a magazine called The Atlantic. And, and in it, there was an article written by a man, I don't believe a Christian man, It called Oh Gods. And it uh, had a very interesting picture on the front cover, uh, you know, the classic Michelangelo picture of, you know, God, you know, reaching down to Adam. Um, well, it had, you know, an elephant and Buddha and God and all these other people stretched out. And the whole article was about the profusion of religions all over the world. And as I was reading through it, I was really amazed. You know, most of us know about Mormonism and Catholicism and Judaism and, you know, Jehovah's Witness and, you know, the big ones, Hinduism and Buddhism and things like that. And, um, you know, you think that you've got a pretty good handle on false religions. But when I began to read this, I, I started reading about religions called, you know, the Ahmadis Messianic Muslims. Did you know there was a group? I didn't. I never heard of them before. How about the Brahma Kamaras World Spiritual University with members of over 500,000? Ever heard of them? I never heard of them. How about the Soka Gaki International with 18 million members? Never heard of them. All over the world, there's people who are buying in to false religions. And of course, this is nothing new because Jesus predicted it and, and Peter and Paul and John and Jude. All the writers of Scripture talk about the last days that there would be this explosion of false teachers and false Christs who would come and deceive many. Well, that day is here. False teachers are legion. And what's amazing about it is that the Christian church as a whole today is tolerating them. Not only tolerating them in the spirit of ecumenicalism and unity, but actually inviting them in to feed on the wolves. You know, one of the popular things today is, you know, like uh, Willow Creek where, where, where Bill Hybels brings in a Muslim and gives the pulpit to a Muslim so that he can, you know, show that he is tolerant. What is that? 
It's a responsibility of all Christians, and especially of the leadership of the church, to learn how to spot false teachers so they can be exposed and driven away from God's flock. Satan knows that he cannot stop Christianity. He knows that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And you would think, at least Hollywood would make you think, that Satan is emphasizing all of these uh, anti-religious things, atheist things, but really, Satan is the champion of religion. He is the champion of promoting religions, lots of them. He sends his demons out to promote so many religions that true biblical Christianity becomes the proverbial needle in the haystack. So even if somebody was hungry and thirsting for God... It's very difficult to find a Bible-preaching, Bible-believing church. Some of you have probably moved at times, either here or maybe you've moved somewhere else and moved back. And you know when you move to a new place and maybe you've been going to a good church that has solid teaching and preaching and is doing things according to the Word of God and you move to some town, you're thinking, well, surely, you know, this town's 150,000 people. There's got to be a good church here. And some people for, you know, a year, two years, they're going from church to church to church to church, trying to find one church. Now, that's if they look in the phone book under just those churches which have a label that says they're Bible-believing. Now, you throw into that the mix of all the pseudo-Christian religions and all the other non-Christian religions, you can see how Satan has created this huge forest of artificial trees and there's biblical Christianity in the midst. And that is one of his ploys. And that is why in the book of 1 Timothy, Paul goes to back to this issue over and over and over again. And again, we come, even though we're at the last chapter, he decides to address it again. It must have been a real problem at Ephesus. Now, we have learned from our study of 1 Timothy that the church of Ephesus was just being blasted. I mean, you can read Acts, you can read 1 and 2 Timothy and find out that Timothy was just being attacked and false teachers and, and pagan things and immorality, and it was just being blasted. Why? Because Ephesus was a key city. Major trade routes intersected there. They had a harbor there. They had one of the seven wonders of the world there, the the temple to Artemis and Diana that people came from all over the world to see. So it was a great place to have a church, share the gospel, because when people are coming through, if you lead them to Christ, you spread Christianity all over the Mediterranean basin. And that's why Paul put so much emphasis and spent three years there. That's why he sent Priscilla and Aquila there, and Timothy, and Titus, and Tychicus, and all these great men. You know, Apollos, the man who was mighty in scriptures and eloquent in preaching, sent him there. They were all sent there to try and fortify that church against the onslaughts of, of Satan and to try and build a beachhead and, and, and start an offensive to attack the forces of darkness. Paul, when he spoke to the Ephesian elders who met him in Miletus in Acts 20, verses 29 and 30, warned them of this. I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. He says, 
listen, elders, you need to realize this, that false teachers are going to come from without, not sparing the flock. You need to know, elders, that from among your own selves, your own flock, perverse men will arise to deceive and lead astray those who are disciples of Christ. Just get ready for it. Paul knew that Satan would send in these savage wolves to infiltrate the church, and they were there. And that is why in 1 Timothy 1.3, you remember what, what Paul said there? You can look there if you want. He said, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines or pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. Again, in verse 6, he speaks of those who turned aside to fruitless discussion. Again, in verse 7, Paul warns Timothy of those who do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. In 1 Timothy 1, verses 19 and 20, he speaks of two men who, because they rejected their conscience, suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, Paul speaks of those hypocritical lie speakers who have consciences that are seared, he says, as with a branding iron. And they go about teaching the doctrines of demons in hopes they will cause some to fall away from the faith. And now here again, in 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5, Paul addresses it again. Again. False teachers were such a problem in Timothy's day, and they're a problem in our day too. You know, you may not realize it because you may come here and be involved in different ministries, but the elders deal with false teachers all the time, especially the pastors. We have guys coming in and guys preying on our sheep and all sorts of things. Sometimes they succeed and sometimes we drive them away. But false teachers are very slick. They usually are, are very articulate. And uh, if you were to talk to one, they seem very almost passive. Usually they're, they're just so cordial and gentle until you begin to probe into their lives and question what they teach. And all of a sudden, their fangs drop down. And they get angry and bitter and mad and they accuse you of things and start blame shifting and hiding from their sins and they won't deal with the issues and they stomp out mad. And then they show up to all the people they've met in church and, you know, the, the elders are really deceived and I'm going to be praying for this church. And, and the people in the church are going, God, the guy seems so nice. He seems so placid, so kind, so gentle, like a sheep. You just pull back the skin and raw. And that's what we see. You expose them and their teaching and their sin. They don't humble themselves. They get angry. They blame shift. They accuse. You start saying, well, the Bible says this. And then they want to start just quoting verses out of context. And, oh, yeah, well, you know, you can't front me and you're being unloving. And, you know, you need to follow Matthew 18. And they try and, you know, distort and get you off the track and confuse you. You just stick to the same thing you were talking about. Let's get back to this thing. Let's get back to this thing. They want to shift around. They never want to stay in one place because they don't want you to pin them down. 
And you may not realize it, but we always have to do with, deal with these things in the church. So it's important that not only the leaders, especially the leaders, know how to see and expose false teachers, but it's also important for you so that you don't get led astray. And that's what this text is about this morning. So if you have your Bibles, look at verse 3 and follow along. I'm going to read verses 3 through 5. Paul says this. He says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. This text is loaded with information about false teachers. I almost was tempted to do a two-parter on it, but we're going to squeeze them in because we've, we've, gone, we've addressed it so many times. There are 17 characteristics of false teachers in this passage, these three little verses here. And so I thought, well, you know, if I had a 17-point sermon, that might be a little weighty. We, might, we would never finish that. So I thought, you know, what I'll do is, is I'll package it into five points. So I kind of took a... A, a approach where I took all these 17 points and I kind of lumped them together into different categories and I came up with five categories. So I'm going to give you all 17 points, but it's not going to seem as bad because there are five categories. So hopefully that'll be helpful. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, we have our first characteristic or mark of a false teacher. They will want to teach you different doctrines. Paul says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine. Now, if you look at the beginning of that sentence, there's a little if there. This is called a first class conditional, and it means if, and we assume it is true. In other words, Paul is not saying, Timothy, now if this ever happens to you, he is saying, Timothy, we know this is happening to you, and if something like this happens, this is what you do. So we assume it is true. And he then gives the primary weapon that false teachers use to attack the church and the glory of God, and that is different doctrines. You know, you've probably heard the phrase orthodoxy, which means um, teaching that is the same. And then there is teaching that is heterodoxy, that is teaching which is different. Well, here Paul uses a compound of two words, heteros, which means different, and didaskalos, which means teach. It means to teach differently. It's the same word that he uses in 1 Timothy 1.3 when he talks about those who teach strange doctrines. Same word. It's the only, it only appears in verse 3 and here in our text in the New Testament, only these two occurrences. Different teaching. Now, once he says... In verse 3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine or a different teaching or an opposite teaching, he then explains and gives three more phrases to define what different teaching is. Notice what the text says. First, Paul says they do not agree with sound words. The word sound is a word we've encountered before. It means um, to be healthy. It's the same word we get hygienic from, to be clean 
sound, safe, healthy, whole, free from any mixture of error. In other words, false teaching is not safe, it is not sound, it is not healthy, and it is full of error. He also goes on to explain that these false teachers in their not sound, not healthy, full of error teaching bring this teaching into the church and spread it around like anthrax. Satan develops false teachings and his demons spread them like a disease, a virus to infect the church. And notice that they, the second thing he says is they do not conform or agree with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. So not only are they different words, not only are they unsound words, they're words that don't conform to the words of Christ. So what does he mean by that? Basically, he means the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of the Bible. Jesus is the incarnate Word. According to John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Jesus is God's Word incarnate. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. And when the Bible speaks, Jesus speaks. And so when he says the words of Jesus, he specifically means the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, his followers, but all the Bible would be fitting under that category in a general way. Jesus is the incarnate word. So they don't even agree with Jesus' teachings, which means they're extra-biblical and unbiblical. Now, the final description he gives to these different doctrines is teachings that are not conforming to godliness. They're doctrines, notice what the text says, that do not conform to godliness. They do not agree with doctrines conforming to godliness, Which would mean what? Well, the godliness term here is the same term we've seen through the whole book. It means godly piety or reference. Well, if they don't conform you to godliness, then they must conform you to what? Wickedness. They corrupt you. They make you more wicked. They're doctrines conforming us into Satan's image rather than to Christ's image. Now... What is interesting about this, we have to ask ourselves, why would someone teach the doctrines of demons? Why would somebody go about to corrupt other people with their teaching? Well, that's our second point. Their heart is corrupt. That's why every student becomes like their teacher. And if the teacher is corrupt, the student is corrupt. Look at verse 4. Paul says he is conceited... This is the main verb of the entire text. The rest are participles. He is conceited. That is what he is. Now, what does it mean to be conceited? Well, it's very interesting. This word means to be high-minded or to be lifted up with haughtiness or pride. The literal meaning of the word is actually to be puffed up or wrapped up in smoke. He's like an overinflated beach ball. You cut him open and there's nothing there. He's air. He's all hot air. There's nothing there. Now, he may appear to have some substance, but he is like a vapor. He is all puffed up and swelled up with vapor or mist or a cloud. You blow away this mist of the cloud and you don't see a godly man there. You see a false teacher. 
And from personal experience, I can tell you that most of the false teachers I have dealt with are very smooth and soft-spoken and articulate men. And they always want to just dialogue with you. Can't we just talk? Can't we just discuss? And what they really mean by that is, can't you sit still while I try to feed you my lies? Listen, you don't have anything to gain from dialoguing error with anybody. You can talk to a false teacher, but make sure you're talking and make sure you're presenting the gospel. Why? Well, if they don't know Christ and they don't have God's spirit, they cannot understand his word. And so to try to talk to them about the interpretation of the Bible is fruitless. They must first repent and believe before they can even begin to discuss the Bible. So what you want to do is you want to give them the truth. You want to give them the truth. They oftentimes appear so patient and so gracious, and they're just angels. And, and people who maybe have been deceived by them think, well, bye, I, I met that guy. I thought he was really nice. I mean, he was really nice to me. He was really soft-spoken and really kind. Well, I tell you, when you expose them, when you blow away the cloud of their hypocrisy that um, surrounds them, they become like cornered animals. All of a sudden, there's something that switches inside of them. They see that you have exposed them. They know that the con is up, that the deception is over, and then they reveal their true self, which is their wolfish nature. Their fangs pop out. They become angry. They become abusive. They become full of rage and accusing. I have dealt with this over and over. Guys like that, they call up and, oh, yes, well, I just want to talk. Sorry, we don't do that. We, you believe this. This is false. And then, oh, man, they just explode on you. Because that's who they really are. Look down a little further in verse 4. And notice what else Paul says is true of false teachers. He says, but... He has morbid interest. Now, the word but here is a strong contrast word. And Paul has just noted, and we're going to get there in a minute, what false teachers do not have, and that is understanding. And he says, but, and now he's going to tell us what they do have, morbid interests. They have morbid interests. What does that mean? Well, the Greek literally describes they have an obsession they have an obsession that is so severe, it becomes a sickness, you know, kind of a mental problem. They are so deceived and deluded by the truth, they have this fatal attraction with the doctrines of demons. The point Paul is making here is that false teachers are so obsessed and engulfed and entangled in their web of demonic lies that they are sick. They are sick. They have this morbid sickness, this passion for the white spaces of the Bible. Now, not only that, but look down at verse 5, where Paul says that false teachers cause constant friction between men of, notice what the text says, depraved mind. That is another indicator about their heart, isn't it? Not only are they conceited, not only do they have morbid interests, but their mind is depraved, that is corrupt, like a rotting carcass. Their whole minds and hearts is like this rancid, dead animal. And they gather other men to themselves. Notice what the text says. It says, between men 
of depraved minds. So, not only are they depraved, but they find people are depraved so that they can talk about and refine and argue and debate their false doctrines. If you have ever dealt with a false teacher, you have may, may have been impressed by their Bible knowledge and their education and their articulation and their ability to communicate. But do you know what God's estimation of them is? Third point, they are ignorant. They try to teach you, but they themselves are ignorant. If you look at the text, and we've just mentioned it already... There are two interesting phrases which describe what they are like. The first is found in verse 4 where Paul says that false teachers are conceited and understand what? Nothing. He doesn't say they don't understand very much. He says nothing. If you look down in verse 5, Paul says they are deprived of... Of the truth. Deprived is a passive participle. Now, if you were had an active participle, it means that you are doing some sort of ongoing action. If you have a passive participle, that means somebody else is doing something to you. And in this case, they are deprived. Somebody or something is keeping them from knowing the truth. Now, can you think of what that might be? What person might keep them from knowing the truth? Satan. You got it. Do you remember what 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 4 says? Paul was describing how the gospel is veiled to some, and he said, to this, said this. Verse 3, 2 Corinthians 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Notice right there that Satan is working overtime to keep people veiled and blinded. Why? Because truth is what saves people. Truth is what sanctifies people. And people who are saved and people who are sanctified share the truth with other people and those people all give glory to God, which is not what Satan wants. Truth undermines Satan's false doctrines and his demonic plots. And so Satan is doing everything he can to keep people blinded from the truth. Now, when Paul says they are ignorant and understand nothing you must understand this about that, and that is, he is not talking about worldly intelligence. He is not saying that these people are uneducated. He is not saying they haven't gone to Ivy League schools and have a huge list of letters behind their name. Remember that Satan, when he tempted Jesus, did what? He quoted the scriptures. Remember that false teachers appear as angels of what? Light or truth. When Paul says they are ignorant, he is not talking about intelligence in the world's view of intelligence. He is talking about ignorant of spiritual things. 
They do not have the Spirit's help in understanding or being able to experience the truth. Do you remember we read from Jude 19 that they are men who are devoid of the Spirit? Do you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14? Remember when he's talking about we have the, the Spirit and we can understand the things of God and they're freely given to us. But he says, but the natural man does not understand the things of God. That he cannot understand them. They are actually foolishness to him because they are spiritually appraised. Have you ever gone home? The door's locked. You pull out your keys. Try and stick the key in there, and you're, you, maybe it's dark, and you're wiggling it, and you can't get it in. And then you look, and you realize it's the wrong key. Well, that's how it is with false teachers. They don't have the key of the Holy Spirit to unlock the truths of God's Word. Oh, they can know the facts. They can know the stories. They often know the stories and the facts of the Bible better than most Christians. They are so driven by their lust, which we will see in a minute, that it causes them to be fanatic studiers of their little minutiae doctrines. They take the scriptures and distort them and twist them, and they can out, usually out-argue and out-quote the average pew-sitter. But because they do not have the Spirit, are devoid of the Spirit, and they cannot understand the things of God, they cannot access the truth of God's Word. That when he says they cannot know... The Greek literally reads, they do not have the power to know or understand. They don't have it in themselves. They don't have the resources because they are spiritually dead to understand the truth. They're ignorant of all spiritual truth, all of it. Now, think about this. If you were, let's say you were in junior high and you came to Christ last week, you would know more spiritual truth than some men who are Bible experts and scholars and who have been studying for 60 years. They have no spiritual understanding. But you know, it's not just Satan that keeps them ignorant. There's another person, and that person is God. He does it as a form of judgment. Turn over to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11. There's a lot of places we could go to see this, but this is as clear as any. Matthew 11, verse 25. Now, Jesus has just gone through all the cities on the uh, west shore of Galilee, uh, Capernaum and all those areas there, and he has preached the gospel in the areas where they knew him. It was kind of his home base. But they didn't re- want to receive him. They didn't want to believe the truth. And even though he performed miracles, Jesus pronounces judgment upon them. And this is what he says in verse 25 and following of Mass- Matthew 11. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligence and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father 
except the Son, and, notice what the last line is, anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. If God does not have grace upon you, if God does not illuminate you with His Spirit, you cannot understand His truth. There must be an internal regeneration, there must be the Spirit transforming, and then you have access to the truth, and only then you have the key to unlock the spiritual meaning of the Word of God. Now, who did Jesus say the Father hid truth from in this text? Notice, the wise and intelligent, not the fools and the ignorant. That is, the wise and intelligent of the world. Here are all these Pharisees who were experts in the law, men who lived in the Scriptures and wrangled about the Scriptures, but who didn't know God, and they couldn't understand what Jesus said was saying, because God didn't grant them the ability to do so. In 1 Timothy 1.7, Paul described them, we already mentioned it, as those who were wanted to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. False teachers will try to use their worldly knowledge and their understanding about the Bible, maybe even their understanding of Hebrew and Greek and and all kinds of stuff. I can't tell you how many times the Jehovah Witnesses come to the house and try and talk to me about the anarthrous construction of John 1.1. And they don't even know what that is. And you're saying, anarthrous? That means it doesn't have a the there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was no the God. And they try and tell you, so, oh, you've studied a little Greek, huh? Well, yeah, a little bit. Well, tell me, tell me this. In the Greek, there is the article, right? That means definite, the, specific, right? And now when the article's not there, what does every Greek grammar say that means? Every Greek grammar that I have, and I've got about four of them, says it means of the same essence and substance as. So they want to come to you and say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the specific God, and the Word was, and they want to say, a little God. No, of the same essence and nature as God. It actually makes the verse stronger. That's what they want to do. They want to impress you and wow you, and pretty soon you don't know. I mean, I don't know anything about that. And maybe they're right. Now, you can imagine the consequences of sitting under the teaching of a false teacher who is void of the Spirit and knows nothing. You can understand the consequences of listening to and being discipled by a person who has a depraved mind and is deprived of the truth. And that is the fourth point. Their teaching will corrupt you. We have already noted in general terms, Paul says, they have doctrine which does not conform into godliness. But here, Paul lists seven ungodly character traits that are spawned, seven viruses, so to speak, that are spawned by false teachers. Verse 4, look at there. Verse 4, look at there. Their morbid interests produce, first of all, controversial questions. False teachers want to cause controversy. So they want to dialogue, they want to debate, they want people to engage in debates with them in their smooth and flattering speech. But listen, what good is it to talk to somebody about spiritual truth who doesn't know God or spiritual truth? It's futile. 
So the only thing you want to talk to them about is the gospel. That's all. Don't go talking about things about the kingdom and about who Satan's brother is and about what the two sticks mean. And you've been there, so you laughed. And you don't want to go there because the power of God to save people is the gospel. It is the power and the only power for all who believe. So if you're going to engage somebody, don't sit there and get in a dialogue over their doctrinal distinctives. Tell them the gospel and that's it. Don't engage them or, John says, you participate in their evil deeds. Now, the second virus that is caused is not only does it produce these controversial questions, look at the text, also disputes about words. You want to talk to them about their immorality and they want to argue with you a fine point of the Hebrew. You want to talk to them and confront them about their greed and they want to um, correct you that you have not quite followed Matthew 18 to the precision that they think it should be. They want to dispute. They want to get the attention off of them and their sin and their false doctrine and they want to put it on something else. Everything is an exception. Everything is a twist. Everything is a bit of minutia, an endless process of debating little trifling nuances of words and meanings. And this gets you totally off the track, which is them and their need to repent and reject their false doctrine, and it gets it on other things. It's a technique. It splits the church. It divides people. And this must have been a problem because in 2 Timothy 2.14, when Timothy... It receives the second letter from Paul. Paul says this in 14 and 15. He says, Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Now, you might think from a verse like that, Paul is saying, Listen, don't get into the the minutiae of Scripture. And you might be thinking, Jack, what are we doing spending this long in 1 Timothy? I mean, it's every little phrase and every little word and every little whatever. I mean, isn't that what Paul's saying? Don't get into this wrangling about word. No, that's not what he's saying. As a matter of fact, the very next verse, he says this. But be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately or with precision Handling the word of truth. He's not saying don't go deep. He's not saying don't study every word or phrase. But he says don't miss the big picture and get led astray by false teachers into wrangling about a whole bunch of minutiae that doesn't even matter. That you can't even see in the text unless you have a microscope and a huge imagination. Don't go there. Now, the controversial questions and disputes about words then produce four more of their own mutant diseases. Look at what the text says, out of which arise envy. Now, envy is when you despise somebody else because they have something you don't. It's kind of like covetous and jealousy mixed together. It's, it's when they have a position or an advantage over you, you know. They come in and, and, and some false teacher says, you know, I'd like to teach that class. And so he's lusting, he's envious of this person and their position or, or their title or, or what they can do and they can't. And so they're envious. Not only that, it says their controversial questions and disputes not only produce envy, but also strife. This is a great word. 
It's the word logos, the word we the word logos, standard word, and then it's the word fight, mukaias tacked onto the end. It's word fighter. What those who love to use words to fight with, to cause strife. And quarrels. False teachers come into a church. They spread their lies. Those lies cause arguing and strife and disputes. And those people then devour one another like cannibals. And Satan is having a heyday. And this all in turn produces the next thing. Look at the text. Abusive language. Abusive is the word that we saw last week was blasphemies. In other words, slanderous, injurious, demeaning, speaking evil against somebody else. That's what it produces. And in turn, this produces evil suspicions. Evil suspicions. Literally wicked and evil assumptions. Jane was telling me, the church secretary was telling me that she uh, went out to some place and was talking with somebody and they got in a little conversation. And she says, oh yeah, I go to Calvary Bible Church. And the woman said, you do? And then she began to instruct Jane on what I taught, even though she's never come here. She says, do you know Jack Hughes believes that women could never work outside the home? And Jane says, no, he doesn't do that. Oh, yes, he does. She was confident of it. She had heard a lie, and she would never come here because of that. You know, Jane has a whole list of of." of lies that people have spread about me and she just kind of keeps collecting them. They're pretty humorous. You know, Jack doesn't believe in the Holy Spirit. I don't? <laughs> Things like that. And what happens is, is people get in and they begin to speak lies and then pretty soon there's, because of the envy, and then this strife happens and then this abusive language happens and then pretty soon evil suspicions Have you ever had anybody come up to you and say something that was false that you found out later, but they came up to you and they said, oh, you know, so-and-so. You know, I've heard that that person is blah, 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 blah. And then you're thinking, I wonder if that's true. And you're thinking, you know, I don't know this person very well, and I don't believe their source, and yet, until you find out different, what happens every time you see that person? I wonder if that's true. Evil suspicion. Because you've, you've, this doubt, this lie has been planted in your head, and most people aren't brave enough to go to the person and say, Hey, so-and-so told me this. Is that true? And so then they live with these evil suspicions. You know, I wonder what they're doing. I wonder if that's true. And that's just what Satan wants. Doubt, suspicion, to be untrusting. He loves to fracture and divide the truth, the church this way, by torturing the truth. In verse 5, we have our seventh virus. Paul says it also produces constant friction. Constant friction. Between who? Men of depraved mind, deprived of the truth. Remember that it says between there. So we already looked at one side. The false teachers are depraved of mind and deprived of the truth. And then they argue with people who are depraved of mind and deprived of the truth. And together, there is this constant, it's a participle, a never-ceasing friction. Have you ever gone to a church where no, everybody, it's like all these little fiefdoms in the church. You know, there's this church over here, this little group over here in the church, and they're fighting for their thing, and this group's fighting for this thing, and this group's, and everybody's kind of gossiping and warring with each other. 
The church is going nowhere. Nothing is happening. Nobody's sharing their faith. No one's coming to the Lord because all the energies and all the pursuits are all selfish and they're all fighting against one another. Satan is just having a feast in a church like that. He is just totally incapacitated. Why? Because of these evil suspicions, which arise from this abusive language, which arise from strife, which arise from envy, which arise from controversial questions and disputes. And that's how he loves to take out the church. So be careful not to fall into that. Now, those who are new to the faith and those who have never had good teaching and those who are merely pretenders are very gullible to false teachers. And so we must be careful to protect them, especially as leaders. Now, you might ask yourself, what is, what is driving all of this? I mean, you've already said they have a wicked heart, but I mean, what, why would they go do this? Why would somebody spend all this time and all this effort and all this energy being a false teacher? Well, that's our fifth point. They do it for their own personal gain. They want to use you to gain a personal advantage. That's why. They do it for personal gain. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is the engine that, that drives them. Notice at the end of verse 5, it says, Of all the stuff that's said about false teachers, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain? Godliness, the same word. But here Paul's using it in a, you know, a sarcastic way. Of course they aren't godly. And so what are they? Well, false teachers pretend to be godly. They put on this godly persona. Why? So they can deceive people. I mean, you wouldn't go to somebody who is just out and out wicked. They know that. The phrase means of gain describes the process of seeking or acquiring more for yourself, usually money. But it can be Sexual pleasures, it can be power or control or their ego. They fake praying to pretend to understand, to study the Bible because they love it. It's all untrue. They feign concern. They pretend to be humble. They fabricate this thin veneer of godly character. And they appear as angels of light because they're seeking an advantage and they want to use you to promote themselves. And feed their lusts. They're self-serving. And because of that, you need to watch out. You know, look at all the cults out there who have huge resources. Why? Because they beg people and they deceive people. And pretty soon people are just giving them everything. And, you know, and the, the, the main teachers got, you know, a fleet of Rolls Royces. I was just reading about Gene Scott, who takes the offerings, he buys Monet's and Rembrandt's, you know, 60, 70, 80, 100 million dollar pictures to hang up in his, his church. And this is nothing new. In Isaiah 56, 11, Isaiah speaks of the shepherds that have turned to unjust gain. In Jeremiah 6.13, Jeremiah said of the leaders of his time, Everyone is greedy for gain, and from the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. 
In Matthew 23, 14, Jesus described the Pharisees as those who devour widows' houses. Paul spoke to Titus about those who were upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not for the sake of sordid gain. In 2 Peter, false teachers are described as many will follow after their sensuality, that is, their lust for the impure and the immoral, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They'll tell you anything you want to hear if you are drawn in. If you are drawn in. They'll pretend concern and compassion in order to deceive and seduce. Now all of these texts and many others reveal that lust is what fuels false teachers. That is the underlying thing they're after. If they didn't get something for themselves, they wouldn't be a false teacher. They do it because they want the praise of men, they want the accolades, they want the money, they want the women or whatever. Now Jude describes them. In Jude, if you look in verses 12 and 13, these are, these are great words here. These are some of the most graphic words in all the Bible. These men, these are the men, he says, who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. Now, I just love that because I was a commercial fisherman. I know about hidden reefs. We had to rescue this boat who hit a hidden reef. It was a storm and uh, the, the coral heads, big pinnacles of coral, which lie right underneath the surface of the water, you, you can't see them. If there's big waves sometimes, they pop up just briefly. But they're under there you know, maybe six, eight feet, but you have a boat that's drying, you know, 12, 13, 15 feet of water. It comes up on them and the swell comes up and it just punches right through the bottom. And that's how he describes these false teachers. They're like a nice sea. On the surface, you can't see anything, but right under the surface, if you were to look, there's death and tragedy. He goes on to say, when they feast with you without fear... Without fear. Have you ever had a con man con you? I mean, I've had so many con me. Try to. Um, I'm just as surprised at their just brazenness. No fear at all. They just come to you and just lie to you, just bold face. No fear. They come and they feast with you without fear. Caring for who? God? You? No, themselves. Clouds without water. Oh, there's going to be a nice rain. Nothing comes out. Carried along by the winds, that is, by their own lust. They're just blown here and to wherever it can get advantage. They're like autumn trees with no fruit. Not only are they no fruit, but they're doubly dead. There's not even a leaf on them. And they're uprooted. Just in case you think you might pick a piece of fruit, just think of a tree, some orange tree, that's been sprayed with poison, it's totally dead, a tractor comes and rips it up and laying on the ground. Now you would be a fool to go over there and try and pick some oranges off of it. It's doubly dead and uprooted. And that is how these false teachers are. There's nothing there. There's nothing to get from them. Then he really gets wound up. Verse 13 They are like wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. They are nothing but fuel for the fires of hell. That's what he's saying here. Those are strong words. 
And when you see how Jesus deals with false teachers in the gospel, when you see how Paul deals with them and John deals with them and Jude deals with them and how they're dealt with all the way through the Bible, God does not like false teachers. They feed on his sheep. They represent what he hates. So what have we learned from this text? Well, we've learned five things. The first thing is... False teachers will want to teach you different doctrines. These are described as doctrines which are not sound words, doctrines which do not conform to the words of Christ, and doctrines which lead to wickedness. Secondly, their heart is corrupt. The text says they are conceited. The text says they have morbid interests. The text says they are of depraved minds, corrupted minds. Thirdly, they teach out of ignorance. We know that because the text says they understand nothing. The text says they are deprived of the truth. Their teaching will corrupt you. How do we know that? Because the text says it leads to controversial questions. Secondly, it leads to disputing. And controversial questions and disputing lead to five other things, envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction. And five, they're in the ministry for their own personal gain. Do you think ever Timothy ever learned this lesson? When you think how many times Timothy was addressed by Paul in this book, and guess what? In chapter 6, the last two verses, he's going to address it one more time just to make sure. And then in 2 Timothy, he dresses it again. You wonder if Timothy ever learned the lesson. Well, you guess what? We can know that he did. And how do we know that? In closing, let's turn to Revelation 2. In Revelation 2, there are these seven letters to seven churches, and one of those churches just happens to be the church of Ephesus. Now, almost every church has something that Christ says that's good about them and something he says that's bad about them. Only one church does he say all good things and only one church does he say all bad things, but there's a mixture. But I want you to know, starting in verse 2 of Revelation 2, that Ephesus learned this lesson, uh, how to deal and spot false teachers. How do we know that? Look what the text says in verse 2. Christ says, I know your deeds... And your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. Look at verse 6. He says, yet this you do have, after he tells them that they have lost their first love and confronts them about that. Another positive thing, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Ephesus learned the lesson, and we need to learn the lesson too. We need to be those who cannot tolerate evil men. We need to be those who put to test everything, examining everything, and holding on to that which is good. We need to have perseverance. We need to endure. And we need to hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, deeds of immorality. 
May we be like the church of Ephesus and learn to spot false teachers. May we be careful to be watching. May we not just come to church in a daze. May we watch out for each other. Just like you watch out for your kids, let's watch out for each other. Because in this day, there are many false teachers and more will come. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now amazed at the thoroughness of your word. We have seen many things about false teachers and again, 17 more things this morning. And Father, we know that these things appear over and over in your word because you want us as a church to be on guard, to watch out, to be sober, to not tolerate evil men or evil deeds in your church. That, Father, we would not allow your chaste and pure bride to be corrupted by those who have only their selfish gain at heart. And, Father, I pray for all of us that you would give us great discernment. I also pray that we would not fall into the error of the church of Ephesus and lose our first love. Help us to love you with a whole heart and a willing mind. Help us to share our faith diligently and not hide in our own little fortified, protected citadel, but get out into the world, share the gospel, live the gospel, preach the truth, and Father, may we ever be on guard and watching, for we know that savage wolves will come from without and from within, not spurring the flock to lead disciples away after them. We know this is true. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.